If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for April 15th, 2021, the Blood Clot Edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C. I'm joined, as ever, by John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from New York City. Hello, John Dickerson. Uh, hello, David. And by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven, Connecticut. Hello, Emily. Hello. Aren't people going to look at that hideous title and think, oh my God, shiver? Uh, well, that's the reaction I had. Okay, well, give it a better title. I mean, it's an accurate title. It is the most important thing happening right now, but it's like a little ghoulish. I've done much more ghoulish titles. Okay. On today's show, should the FDA and CDC have paused distribution of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine because of rare blood clot issues? Then the trial of Derek Chauvin intersects with the killing of another black man in the Twin Cities by a police officer. Will this horror ever end? Then President Biden unveils his ambitious plan to reform the Supreme Court, which is a commission. A whole commission. <laughs> a big-ass commission. 36 people on that commission. Yeah, it's, it's a big commission. Did you four see times the size of the Supreme Court? <laughs> yeah, but David, did you see that um, one of the groups that wants to change the court hired a bus with a banner that read "Retire Briar" and drove it past the Supreme Court? I thought of you when I saw that. A lot of people tweet that me. I don't know why people would send that to me because he's retired. I mean, I, you guys saw the news about the Google ad campaign where they aired that TV spot in the Masters, which showed a montage of people doing searches, including former Justice Briar dressed in black robes, typing what is starry decisis into a search bar, which is so funny that he would search that. And Breyer, then that quote from Breyer about how he, he loves Google products and he was being paid only fairly for the ad and that his endorsement had nothing to do, literally nothing to do with the opinion he wrote in Google's favor in that Oracle case, which was his final opinion. That was pretty amazing. That was like the whole thing about that ad was so funny. You didn't see that, Emily? I didn't see it because it didn't exist. Though there was a Google versus Oracle case. <laughs> there is not enough construction paper in the world to handle the amount of glue created by this dead horse that you have been beating. It's, you know, it's, it's, I've divided the GabFest audience. I know. There are people who look forward to it and people who dread it and know how to hit the fast forward button. And those people, I salute you. I was really, this one was really quick today, John. It's true. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. But uh, you can just sit um, and cringe as you as you I, do. Emily, when you said they hired a bus, I thought you meant they hired a bus to ferry the thirty six people on the Biden commission because it, it requires a school bus to get them all together. All right, we'll we're going to get to that. That's our third topic. <laughs> Let's start with our first topic, which is that cases are rising in states like Michigan and elsewhere driven by variants, by impatience, by incomplete vaccination rolls, by rapid reopenings. And the vaccination rollout itself has reached a worrying stage. We have a few states, including your home state of Pennsylvania, Emily, where there's no longer enough demand for the vaccine supply in parts of the state, which would be great news, except that we're way, way short of vaccinating the number of people needed for herd immunity in states like Pennsylvania. And also alarmingly, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine has now been put on pause as the FDA and CDC investigate reports of clotting in a microscopically small number of recipients of the vaccine, all of them young women, six out of seven million people who've received it. So, uh, Emily, should the feds have paused the J&J rollout? Oh, I am so worried about this. And I had such a visceral reaction of despair. You know, look, like I'm not one of the experts looking at the data. Obviously, it's important for us to be able to trust that safety review is being done in a rigorous and thorough way. But this is such a tiny number of incidents. And I don't know, 
Ned Lamont, who's the governor of my dear state of Connecticut, said this week, you know, I really wish they hadn't done it this way. Like, could they have told people about the risk? Could they have thought of categories of people who could continue to receive the vaccine since the blood clots have been in women, um, basically of like childbearing age? Were there other ways to do this that don't risk undermining public trust more broadly? Because that's my concern, right? I mean, this is about the actual risk of blood clots. And then it's about the public health messaging. And I think there's a real division. You know, some of the people defending the CDC's decision were saying, well, in order to trust vaccines now and forever, people have to know that if there's a problem, it's reviewed. And other people are saying this is an overreaction to a tiny risk, and it creates this grave danger of more vaccine hesitancy. It's so complicated because obviously, from what we know now, the numbers of complications, blood cop complications, are so small that pausing the vaccine, even for a day, even probably for an hour, if you pause it for an hour, would almost certainly increase the amount of death and disease. More people would get COVID and die. Literally, I bet you could figure it out. Like if we pause vaccine distribution of this vaccine for 10 minutes, more people will end up dead or sick than than uh, from whatever complications uh, exist from this. And but, we're looking at a week to 10 days minimum. So but it's we, more But than at that. the same time, you cannot have a situation where public health officials are lying or covering things up. You right. have to have some kind of transparency. Like I think we've learned from the Trump era that this that that when public health officials are are misleading, when the data is fudged, it has a deeply dangerous consequences for public trust overall. And one of the things that the long game I think that the Biden public officials are engaged in, I hope, is to restore this trust. And the way to restore the trust is weirdly is to diminish the trust in this vaccine in in the short term i think i mean it's just like it's so hard I, I don't to tell the, right because we're so in the beginning and we don't know how it's going to go i i find it really it feels like you're trying to game out effects based on things that haven't happened yet my first reaction to this was kind of what we had when uh, during the election when we were all teaching ourselves and everybody else that that slowing down of the counting, the vote counting process was not a sign that there was funny business, but a sign that the system was working. So if there's a pause here, you know, the way the scientists would look at it is the system is working. There's a problem. They're going to look into it, not just because of the infinitesimal number of cases um, where, you know, make sure that there aren't more, but also to do what they did with AstraZeneca, which is to decide if this is something that um, we can just give J&J to people who are over age 50, then that's what we should do so that they can, you know, that they can modify what they're doing with it so far. And then also anybody that in this small number of cases who are getting blood clots, they need to make sure they know how to treat them. Because what if there's a knock on effect of having both the vaccine in your system and the traditional blood clotting medication, and there's some problem. So it seems on the one hand, like science is at work. What what I was thinking through also is we're a year plus into this and we still haven't figured out how to, and we desperately need to, the question of risk assessment. Because in all of the decision making here from the beginning, there's always been a thing where basically the experts have to make a decision based on a tiny little amount of information. And in this case, the information is self-reported. So it's fuzzy. They don't even know if these blood clots are actually coming from the vaccine. But of course, if you wait too long till you have certainty, you can have a huge disaster. And there was, in fact, a U.S. disaster in 1976 with vaccines uh, meant to, to combat the swine flu, which, which gives evidence to both sides of this case. On the one hand, they thought that it was leading to heart attacks. They were wrong about that. But then there were neurological nerve damage that was a result of the, the vaccine that was given, and the swine flu never showed up. And I guess one other thing I'd throw in the mix is you can't be silent, right? If you know that the blood clots are perhaps related, um, federal officials can't just pretend it's not happening because that would obviously reduce trust even more. So how do we talk about a situation where we're perceiving risk, it may only be a temporary pause, and have the public be able to sort of accept that as the natural and healthy course of things? I mean, I I think we're we're in this just extremely difficult place because there's a couple of different things going on. One, there is a media alarmism around vaccine complications, especially even at the beginning of the vaccine 
rollout when there were a couple of of complications, as there always are, a couple of reactions. Like allergic reactions, Yeah, right? there, there were front page stories, even, even in places like, I think, the New, the New York, York Times. Times about this. And that is was just dangerous. It was an overweighting of something, and that could diminish trust in the vaccines. There is an intentional effort by people like Tucker Carlson, their cronies, and I think they're guilty of a true moral crime about hyping up questions about safety, lowering the, intentionally lowering the confidence in it, which without it being based on anything real. And that is like that. And that they're doing that for disingenuous, politically opportunistic reasons. And it's, it's immoral and, and terrible. And then there's this situation where we just have a loss of trust. There used to be an agreed upon public trust in certain kinds of authorities and the loss of legitimacy in those authorities and the intentional sabotage of legitimacy of those authorities by primarily by Republicans discrediting the federal government leads to death. And that's a tragedy. And there's, it's not easy. None of these things is easy to restore. Like you can't restore public trust such that people will feel confident in stuff except by just demonstrating that you're acting responsibly. And that's kind of the bind that the, that the Biden federal officials are in right now, is that the way to act responsibly is to do something that costs lives in the long term. But it's the only way to make people feel that these institutions are actually acting for the public interest. And it's, can, it's tragic. Can I add one thing onto that is I wonder, so you have the traditional diminution of trust in institutions, which we've been, been suffering through. And then I think we are in a special case, which we've all talked about a lot here, which is risk perception, which humans do horribly anyway. And then public, and then all the things you identified, David, are so you have risk perception is really tricky anyway. So you need kind of laboratory conditions to sit, to walk everyone through. And then what you just described it is anything but laboratory conditions, right, in the public health conversation. If you've got like chickens flying into the room and a marching band coming through and, you know, and the water mains breaking. So, but, but even so, even on all that, there is this thing that is we're all going to have to learn in public health because we're going to have to learn it because we're there, another pandemic is coming is that there's a version of what's happened in J&J that the public health officials at the beginning of this crisis were wrestling with, which is they saw the, the, na the nascent signs of a huge pandemic, and they were ringing the alarm bells, and they didn't have enough data. They had the same kind of fuzziness of data that, that we have right now with J&J. And they were saying, yes, data's a little fuzzy, but if you wait and you're wrong, catastrophe. And so... Now, it's interesting, the public health officials are on the other side of the argument with respect to J&J, because &J, they're saying, if you pause this too long, you're going to lose lives, you're going to lose more lives than you would save. But, but both face the same situation, which is how to get risk-averse politicians to do anything ahead of 100% information, which you will never have, because once you have 100% information, everybody's dead. And that's something that is, I think, distinct from the traditional d distrust of institutions. Obviously, it's harder when you distrust institutions more, but it's a, it's a kind of public thinking that we still haven't figured out and that's in a special class. And we got to figure it out because more of these is, are coming. I mean, isn't there one further layer of complication, which is that there have been many points since the pandemic began in which there's been a really hard choice to make and advice to be given. And sometimes our American public health authorities have chosen something that in the longer run looks correct. And in other cases, they have not. And so, you know, I think the notion that we are supposed to blindly follow them, at least for me at this point, is totally unsatisfying. And I think I brought this up a couple weeks ago, but watching this in the face of, um, I think, mostly Dr. Fauci's resistance to you know, one dose delay the second dose, which would increase the number of people with, you know, not complete, but substantial vaccine protection and which the United Kingdom has done with a lot of success. I mean, when you look at their like hugely decreased death rates and greater than our decrease in case rates, you think like that looks pretty good. And if we're going to have a problem with the J&J &J vaccine, could we use the other vaccines more smartly than we are right now? And especially when you think about like the spiking cases in Michigan. I mean, I'm also sympathetic to the people who want more vaccine there. Like if we have a hotspot, why not move it there? So I, I just don't feel like I live in a universe in which 
the track record shows that just trusting what they say is really the best. And also, we have other models from other countries, other other scientists saying other things. It's not like there's a scientific consensus on some of these questions. Emily, you're you're 100% right about this. I guess I feel that we're in a situation now. We've had Michael Mina on the show a couple of times. Michael Mina was a fierce advocate for early cheap testing and it's it's clearly like would have been so much better had we had early, cheap, extensive at home testing, less accurate testing. Like it would have diminished the pandemic enormously. We didn't do it. Like the federal authorities, the commercial authorities who make these things just didn't do it. We failed. But at some point you also have to say, like, okay, we failed, it didn't happen, and like we are on a path. So there is a pretty decent vaccine rollout situation happening in the United States. We have Massive manufacturing, pretty good distribution. Our rates of vaccination are much better than than most countries. It is in no sense perfect. There are clearly ways to improve it. But like the main thing to do is to get people like just feel build confidence in vaccinations and that kind of a like the the sniping at it, the the constant sniping and undermining of whatever is happening is itself a problem. Like the, so the pointing to, we should always like, oh, why aren't we doing yeah. this? Why aren't we doing this? It's like, it's like you can't like, it's, it's, it's like being steered, a car being steered by seven different people. And it's like, you kind of, kind of got to make a bet and sort of say, we're doing that. This, this is how we're doing it. We've got a system. We have a distribution set up. We have people know what the, what the protocols are. Let's just do that. Except, I mean, the people who have been criticizing don't have any power, right? They're not in the car driving. They're like the people. I mean, some of them, a lot of them are scientists, but they're not making policy. No, but But it it sort of changes the public's perception of whether this is working or not, which diminishes public trust. I mean, so are you saying basically, like, even if you have doubts about this move with the J&J vaccine, that you just should be, I mean, seriously question, like, should you just be quiet about it because all the questioning and second guessing is itself undermining public trust and like just better for everyone to just like go right or wrong? It's a, I don't know. It's a, it's a great question. I think two questions, two things. One, I think there's a danger in jumbling all the mistakes together. So the mistake Mina was calling out was bureaucratic slow footedness, um, which is just the clog in the system. Um, you could argue with the FDA and, and CDC on J&J, the bureaucracy is moving too fast. So I think that's a distinct category. For, I think there are three categories you've named. One is bureaucratic slow footedness. One is bad decisions, poorly made. And then the third category is decisions made with the best information at the time. But because you're always making decisions in the fog of war, some percentage of those decisions are going to turn out not to be right. Not because you didn't do everything that was possible, but because by their very nature, all the decisions that are being made in the, in, with respect to COVID-19 are being made with so little information. But you have to make them when you have to make them. And knowing which of the three we're in helps us figure out in the future how to do them better. I think to your question, Emily, it would be great if people who were critical of the pause said, we understand what you're trying to balance here. We understand you can't just be silent about this. But we also recognize that in a public health context, you have to make a balance in favor of more lives saved, and therefore you shouldn't have paused or whatever. But that when they criticize that they do so within a framework of the notion that there is not certainty. And good and faith, you, kind of. And good right, faith, yeah. precisely. Yeah. Right. Precisely, that because that's, we need to build that up and you can be critical while still maintaining the floor of good faith because you all recognize that everybody's making decisions here on limited information and that's always the way it's going to be. Right. I think those are two, that is a critical point that you guys just made there, which is certainty. Like like what you want is acknowledgement of uncertainty and and recognition of good faith when it is merited, which it seems merited in these cases. And that would go a long way. I also think there's a third part, which is treat the public like adults, which is yes. God, yes. Like assume that when you tell them about risk, they they can make decisions, even though it's hard, but that people are people are, you know, I bet you could go to thousands of people and tell them about what happened with the J and J and like, you know, some they're gonna mostly make rational decisions about it. Can I make one more case for being good faith um, 
recognition of the uncertainties of things. The reason you also want to do that is so that when you have unsafe lies told by people in authority who know 100% the opposite of what they are saying in public, and, and, and in this case, I'm talking about the previous president, that those kinds of lies, which which are wreckage to public the public good and public safety, stay glowing in their neon form and aren't muddled by by people who say, oh, well, it's all a confusing thing and who could know better? Um, that's true of some category of things, but then there are affirmative lies which um, are in fact dangerous and they de- deserve a special category. Right. GabFest listeners, we have a live show coming up in less than two weeks, Wednesday, April 28th at 8 o'clock Eastern we are going to talk about the first 100 days of the Biden-Harris administration. We're going to be live on Facebook and YouTube. If you go to slate.com slash live, you can get information and links to sign up for this live show. It's going to be really fun. We haven't done a, a live show, uh, a, a virtual live show in a while. Uh, of course, we're looking forward to getting back to doing real live shows, but it's going to be a while before we can do that. And for now, doing a, a show on Wednesday evening with you will be delightful and it'll be a chance for you to comment and chat and submit questions and we're going to have a great discussion about what's happened in this first hundred days and this live show is presented by lord jones who are the makers of the world's finest cbd products you have heard me talk about lord jones products before you'll actually get to see them and their beautiful packaging when you tune in to this live event and our listeners you'll get to 25% off your first order at lordjones.com slash gabfest. So please go to slate.com slash live to get more information about the April 28th live show and links to sign up for it. There was a really stunning moment for me this week. Actually, truthfully, there were two of them which get at the breadth of violence committed against black men in this country by the police. Uh, Karan Nazario is the Army second lieutenant who was pepper sprayed by cops in Virginia. It turns out he had a family connection to Eric Garner. He called Eric Garner his uncle. Uh, and Eric Garner, of course, was the man who was killed by police in New York. And at the same time, Courtney Ross, who was George Floyd's girlfriend, knew and in fact had been the dean at the school attended by Dante Wright, the man killed by police in Brooklyn Center, Minnesota. It's just a sense of like, my God, it's like it, this violence is so pervasive. It is so frequent that that people upon whom it is visited, that there's there's so much of it. It's It was stunning to me. So, Emily, we have a lot of stuff going on around this issue. We have the killing of Dante Wright. We have the Nazario case, and then we have the Chauvin trial, the trial of Derek Chauvin, the police officer on trial for murder and the death of George Floyd. Um, I don't know. I don't even have a question. Just say something about that. I mean, one thing at this very moment that I've been thinking about is obviously it's important for Chauvin to be able to put on as strong a defense as he can. That's how our adversarial system works. We are watching, though, what is at least for me, this quite painful effort to effectively blame George Floyd for his own death by talking a lot about his drug use. And in the case of Dante Wright, there's a lot of discussion about how, like, well, there was a warrant out for his arrest, and that warrant was for aggravated robbery, and so that somehow justifies the shooting. And, like, these are just Right, or or in the Nazario case, oh, he drove for a mile to a lit gas station. So of course the police are going to be suspicious of him. And so therefore he deserves to be pepper sprayed or, or implicitly. And we should just Sorry. interject. I know we're interrupting the hell out of you, Emily, but the Nazario drove to the, to the filling station to be under the lights because he was worried about being pulled over by police on a dark road, which is not, which is something that, that lots of police run into. So in other words, it's compounded by what we're talking about. Sorry. Carry no, on. I mean, I just am struck in every instance by this problem of people are not like gleaming and pure. None of us are. There's always something that someone can find in a story that makes you look like you're culpable in some way. And obviously there are degrees of that too. But what the police do needs to be judged by 
that particular moment and action and what, you know, they are doing as well as like whatever they're responding to. And one of the ways, especially in the case of Dante Wright, like why are the cops pulling someone over because they have air freshener dangling from their back window to begin with? Like given what we know about road stops and how fraught they become, how much police are hypervigilant in those moments, as well as people, especially I think often black men who fear these encounters for good reason. Like part of what we need to do is not create the conditions in which things spin out of control. And then I think, you know, we should talk about this, like, horror of a police officer intending to grab their taser, their stun gun, and instead pulling out a real pistol. And, you know, that is like a fact of American policing that is about how we use firearms. Um, and it just was obviously had such a tragic outcome here. Well, you know, Emily, your point there is so important about certain kinds of traffic stops, certain kinds of police interactions that, you know, that has been the, the defund the police movement has gotten um, so mangled and, um, and, and, and so kind of abused um, in the political system. But essentially, the argument is essentially move, and you saw it this week in the questioning of uh, Kristen Clark, who uh, would be head of civil rights at, at DOJ under the Biden administration, if if there was better thinking about these interactions so that they didn't take place in the fraud environment that they do, then you don't have mistaken, assuming, let's for a moment, that it was a mistake, um, which from the audio, it sounded like it was a mistake. You don't even get into that situation. You don't even have these kinds of interactions because you think about policing differently, which is, to me, the most important thing, distinct from the label that's being used by those who in bad faith want to make it sound like people who want to modify the way policing works, want to just defund the police completely. I mean, there's so many terrible things. I mean, one of the things I think about, Emily, as you were talking is like, with Dante Wright or with George Floyd, like, police are not in the business of justice. Their job is not justice. Their business is, their job is law enforcement and it's, and it's to take care of the people in their charge so that justice can be done later. The idea that that uh, Dante Wright has a warrant out and therefore it's somehow justice for for the police to maltreat him is so odd. Like the, the job of the police is to take great care of the people that they are arresting to get to provide them the medical care they need to provide them whatever they need so that they can then be, you know, tried if they need to be tried, charged if they need to be charged. But it's not the police's job to carry out justice. That's the system that we all support. And, and I think there's a, there's like this kind of conflation, like that, that police are being allowed to sort of do the jobs of prosecutors. So it's justified. And it's, it's not really the job of the police to do that. And I think also that if you are someone who wants to emphasize like, well, these people did this thing that contributed to the tragedy that followed, you're, uh, you're separating yourself. You're imagining that you would be spared because you didn't have drugs in your system or you didn't have a warrant out for your arrest. And I just like, I am so deeply unconvinced by that. I think like, yes, absolutely, you know, black men are at greater risk in these situations, but they can also happen to anyone. There is an arbitrary, random, just scariness to this. And so if you like imagine that by emphasizing the wrongdoing of the person who gets harmed by the police, like that is going to save you or people you love, like it's just not true. Emily, if you were driving at night on a dark road and a police pulled you, like flashed you, what would you do? Would you pull over or would you yeah. try to get to somewhere lit before you did it? I mean, I find this this question really alarming, especially you have the case. And I, I don't have the details in front of me. But I just saw it flash across a news story of a somebody who was shot and killed by an off-duty police officer out of uniform because they didn't obey the off-duty police officer out of uniforms orders to do something and they were shot and killed and this off-duty police officer is going to face no consequences but it's like why should you obey the order of someone who's not in uniform who's off-duty who pulls you over and tells you to do something like that's you shouldn't like that's a terrifying situation yeah and there were some interesting law professor posts about this whole like loop of how do you know that something's a legal order in the second that it's being given when do you know you're supposed to comply i mean 
I, I think this question of, like, whether you should drive to somewhere with better lighting, I mean, I am scared of the police. So my feelings about the police always is just total deference, like absolute, you know, supine behavior in any circumstance. Like, I say sir more times in a sentence when I'm talking to the cops than in any, like, it otherwise basically doesn't come out of my mouth once in a while to, like, a doorman. That's it. But I just have this, and that's, like, what I teach my children. And I was in the car with my husband last year, and he, like, got into some argument with the police. And I was just like, are you kidding? Like, that is not what we are doing. We are doing what they said. I'm not saying that I, you know, don't understand why other people respond differently. I just feel like they have the gun. And, like, that's all I need to know in the actual moment. But I do think that driving to somewhere where there are witnesses or where there's lighting could be, like, a perfectly rational response, especially if you were a person of color and a man and worried about that interaction in a different way than I am. I wish there were, like, a acceptable social or, or, or the police would accept a signal, which is uh, the you saying, I am going to drive to a place where there are witnesses. And, right. Which doesn't well, be perceived yeah, yeah, as I don't like think fleeing. We have a way to flash that light from the car. Well, but your point, Lieutenant uh, Lieutenant Nazario, the the footage in that is extraordinary. I mean, he's in his fatigues. He's got his hands out the window in a fully lit place, um, and yet they're treating him um, like dis- I mean, they've got their guns drawn. Yeah, yeah they've they've got their guns drawn. Um, one thing that strikes me though is that. This was all captured on police cameras. The the role that cameras have played in putting us in this conversation we're having, it's accelerated the the realizations here of what happens in these in these kinds of instances, which is a pretty strong bulwark against what has happened in the past, which is and you see it in the in the the Chauvin trial, which is the kind of narratives being made out of whole cloth out of the air. One of the expert witnesses on Chauvin's behalf suggested that Floyd might have been um, affected by the carbon monoxide, even though turns out the cop car was a hybrid vehicle and he didn't even know if it was on. In other words, absent video, either in cop cameras or bystanders, the, you can you can see in real time how the narratives get created in the courtroom, and all you need, right, Emily, is just one person on the jury to to have a reasonable doubt, and yep. and it's over. Yeah. Well, so so, do you guys think that the Chauvin trial verdict is is going to be an important marker? I mean, I think if if Chauvin yes. is not convicted, like there, it's going to be a really bad situation for this this issue in this country. And if he, you know, if he is convicted, I I have no idea. I mean, like I'm not, I'm not following the trials. I'm not a juror. I don't know. I don't know whether the evidence warrants his conviction. Uh, The evidence warrants his conviction. I don't know that. I mean, I'm not on the, we're not jurors. I'm just giving my my non-juror opinion. May I ask two questions? One is given your non-juror opinion, do you, do you think it's do you, you think objectively uh, the evidence uh, warrants his conviction, A, which seems like you do, B, subjectively, do you think it would be crazy for any one person on the jury to have reasonable doubt? And then, totally distinct question to both of you, tell me what the smart thing is to think about the effect of uh, George Floyd's death now that a year on, the effect it's had in the larger culture and then the effect it's had with respect to the treatment of young black men by police. And and are those two things distinct? Has there been like, great... Those like seven like how are we shows. remember all those questions? Each of those is like <laughs> a 45-minute documentary. <laughs> well, um, I'm sorry. I, 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 I'm doing a podcast uh, series on all of those. You've killed many fermented soil in my brain. I mean, my feeling about the, the trial to answer the legal question is that the prosecutors were smart to give the jury choices about, you know, third degree versus second degree felony murder versus manslaughter. And that um, if the jurors reject all of those avenues, that that is going to, to me, be shocking. You know, I actually think that there is a way in which George Floyd's death, because the video is so horrifying, has been a kind of wake up call for you know, lots of people, especially white people, for whom this did not seem like necessarily, you know, such a pressing issue in America. I feel like there is more understanding of why the calls for racial justice have have deepened and expanded in the last year. So, 
you know, there is that, um, I suppose, benefit, though. Obviously, we don't want people to have to die so that other people can be more um, aware. I, I mean, to me, the big transformation, besides the fact that it, this the BLM movement was a movement that galvanized more people, it's the biggest you know, protest movement in American history, and that in itself is important, is there's a framing of this issue, which which I don't think most Americans were aware of, and I think they now are aware of, that's really important, which is that the police, that a lot of the jobs the police do shouldn't be done by the police. Yes. That is That doesn't shift what the police do overnight, but it will gradually shift so that I think there's now this understanding that there's all kinds of things that happen that are under the police bailiwick now, which are going to be gradually hived off and treated as their own special expertise that require a different act than a, than a big guy with a gun. And that's going to be a huge shift that will happen over time and is great. And it's, and I think honestly, like many millions of people, and I know I suspect this is true because I'm one of them just never even had that thought until this year. And don't involve them in situations that it's not absolutely necessary. I'm just going to go back to my perennial cry of caution about calling them. One of the things that was popped into my mind, which isn't central to this question, but it does seem a result, is that, and I don't know whether this was revealed by um, the protests in the wake of Floyd's death or whether it was in fact changed. But I mean, Donald Trump's response to the Black Lives Matter protests, some people, Mitt Romney, George W. Bush, others talked about implicit racism and Black Lives Matter. And Donald Trump instead hit a familiar button, which was basically to scare suburbanites. And I'm not intuiting that, it's what he said out loud. And so he mashed that button, which had been successful in previous times, and it was not. In fact, it was the opposite of successful. So the question is whether that was the case before the Black Lives Matter movement or whether something was revealed and a change occurred as a result of Floyd's death and the protests in the wake of it. And I don't know what the answer is that, whether it's revealed or changed, but I think that's a societal change that took place distinct from the question of the relationship between police and the community. Slate Plus members, thank you. You support the GabFest. You support the journalism that Slate does, and you get benefits like no ads on Slate podcasts and bonus episodes of shows and, of course, bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And it's only $1 for your first month of Slate Plus membership. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can sign up today. And our topic for our Slate Plus this week is uh, we're going to talk about whether it is moral and good or, and right to bring a child into this terrible world at this time, given climate change, given global conflict, given pandemic, given the the horrible things that our children might live to see, should people have children. This episode of the GapFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frames that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
in line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You may be surprised to hear that Emily Bazelon does not have a new job. She is not one of the 36 legal scholars appointed to the Biden commission studying the Supreme Court. So, Emily, were you asked to join that commission? (laughs) No, but one of the co-chairs is Christina Rodriguez, who is a beloved law school classmate and colleague of mine, if I can be said to have colleagues at Yale Law School. So I'm very happy that she's front and center. I am sorry for her because she has joined a body that seems (laughs) designed maximally to fail. 36 members, which is a ridiculous number of members on a commission. (laughs) It has no power to do anything except just no power to issue binding recommendations. It can write a report, which I guess is what law professors really love to do anyway. Mm, It does. It's not even really supposed to make recommendations at all, as it's been explained to me. It's It's like analyzing different options. It's like a join flock of, of law professor types meeting for 180 days. It sounds like over Zoom. It literally sounds like it is my nightmare. <laughs> Emily, I am sure these are all fantastically brilliant uh, scholars and thinkers and lawyers. And what a tremendous waste of time. But what are they going to consider? What are they going to do? Uh, yeah, well, right. Um, they're going to consider the various options, everything from expanding the number of justices on the court, which obviously has become, you know, a rallying cry for some liberal advocacy groups, which are really worried about the fact that conservatives are firmly in control of the court. And then they can consider lots of other options. And so can we talk about the other ideas? Because they're both more like maybe realistic and also probably in the medium to long term, I would argue a better fix. And I am now going to um, cite to a piece that uh, Ryan Dorfler and Sam Moyne wrote in The Atlantic, which I really um, appreciated because I thought it did such a good job of laying out that if you want to talk about expanding the justices or court packing, you're talking about who is on the court and you're You know, in the short term, like the Democrats could add a few justices and take control. And until there's unified control of Congress and the presidency from the Republicans, they'll be in the ascendance. But like you end up in a kind of like, what's the Dr. Seuss book that hasn't been canceled? The Butter Butter Battle Battle Book. But the Beetle, the Butter Battle Beetle Book? The Butter Battle Book. It's just the Butter Battle (laughs) Book. It's not Beetle. It's not because you could throw in Beetle there and you'd get another another alliteration. Yeah, I mean, it's basically like an arms race um, in the longer term. Now, I mean, I'm not saying that you couldn't justify adding a justice or two as a kind of payback for the combination of the, you know, Republicans in the Senate not considering Merrick Garland's nomination because it was the end of Obama's presidency and yet rushing through Amy Coney Barrett because it was the end of President Trump's presidency. But in the longer run, I'm a little skeptical that, you know, ratcheting up the number of justices is a great idea. But what um, Ryan and Sam are talking about is changing what the court does, how much power it has in American life. And if you are skeptical of judicial supremacy, of the idea that our least democratic branch is weighing in about like every important issue in American life, this is a lot to attract it, both for conservatives and liberals, because there have been periods, particularly the 1960s and early 70s, in which the court was a real friend to liberal causes. And I think it still is sort of running on the fumes of that Warren court era among liberals. But it has also been like a seriously reactionary force at other key moments in American history, like the end of Reconstruction and the Lochner era and almost wrecking the New Deal. So... If you worry about that, you might want a court that doesn't have all the power it has now. And so, for example, you could have a court where you have to have six justices sign on to overturn a statute. That would change the power relationship among the branches of government, right? Because you're saying, okay, we're going to accord more deference to the democratically elected branches that pass this law and give less power to this very small number of people who wear black robes. There are other, you know, possibilities in that domain, like stripping the court of jurisdiction of certain kinds of cases that I think deserve more of an airing and greater public understanding than they have now. And so maybe the commission can help with that. How can those decisions 
would those have to be statutorily done? Would that have to be constitutional? Could the court itself, could the Supreme Court itself declare, like, we we say that only six to three decisions uh, overturned statutes? Where does that change come from, I guess, is my question. I, the change would come from Congress, and the court would probably be inclined to try to strike it down. But there have been <laughs> other moments of jurisdiction stripping in various points in American history. It's not like it's unheard when? of. And the Constitution itself has jurisdictional limits on what when, the federal When has there been jurisdiction stripping? I think, like, in the 1860s, that was um, part of the fighting going on when they were changing the number of justices. There were also jurisdiction-stripping proposals, and I think at least one of them passed. Some historian can fill this out or correct me. But in any case, this idea that Congress can set limits on what the courts can see and hear, like, that comes from the constitution itself when it passed they talked about how you had to have a certain amount of money at stake in a case and there had to be some reason that a federal as opposed to state court was going to hear it so like that idea i mean i guess the supreme court could strike it down but i mean it seems to me like it has a really firm basis in the american system can i move us from cart to horse because i think um please this is all cart talk but i think that the precondition for any of these changes happening and also i think for people understanding what's going on is to and maybe everybody knows this but um you know it, it, there's a way in which this debate feels like well democrats sour grapes they didn't win the presidency and you know they didn't get to name the people on the court and you, tough luck for them why are they trying to change this venerable american institution uh just because they you know lost in a fair game so I'm relying on all these figures from Ron Brownstein. But um, if you look at, so, it, and, and then this is also a question to you, Emily, which is, is the central thing for these 36 members to answer the question of whether the Supreme Court, which was designed in some ways to be, not designed in some ways, it was designed to be slower than the passions of the moment, has gotten so detached from the current moment that it's broken. So Democrats have won, have won the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. But the Republicans have controlled the White House, which names the members of the Supreme Court, for 12 of the past 28 years. So that's one of the ways in which the popular will of the people is disconnected from the person who's naming the Supreme Court justices. Then you have Republicans have controlled the Senate for 22 of the 40 years. And this is according to Brownstein's piece, which quotes uh, Lee Drutman of the uh, um, New America think tank, which is that only in one two year period during the span of time that Republicans have controlled the Senate has it been the case that the GOP has represented a majority of the American public. So most of the other time, the GOP, which is ratifying the Supreme Court picks of the presidents who have not been elected by the popular vote does not represent a majority of the American public. They represent a geographical um, distribution of the Senate. And so the question then is, is that combination of uh, representation in both the Senate and the presidency broken with respect to the way these justices should be picked and so undemocratic that it, cre it represents a uh, like something that the founders would not have wanted. Is that the central question you have to figure out first, Emily, before you can create the conditions for then a solution to that problem? I mean, I think those those facts are really important context for the extreme concern about what the court could do next on, among liberals, right? It's the sense that if the court lurches to the right, it's going to be standing in the way of, uh, you know, potentially powerful progressive era of government in a way that is out of step with the American electorate. And we've seen this happen before. I mean, this is the Lochner era in the early 20th century, and then following on the, you know, the early decisions by the Supreme Court that almost wrecked the New Deal. It was a very conservative set of justices effectively appointed by previous presidents who were having this kind of, like, death grip, um, to be dramatic, on what people were doing to try to protect workers. That's like the Lochner era. There's all this, um, you know, labor protective legislation passing. And then there's like FDR and the New Deal and trying to save the country from the Depression. And, and again, like, you know, pro-worker efforts that the court is, is obstructing. So that's exactly the concern. And I think, you know, I... I've written about this regularly. I feel like it's really hard to take this issue 
to make it feel super urgent and mainstream at a moment when the court isn't doing something obviously dire. So, right, there's always a dynamic. Like, if the conservative majority of six does not wield its power in dramatic, you know, society like altering fashion, then the the heat behind, you know, these efforts to reform the court is going to dissipate. And it's just a little hard to tell right now. You know, in a sense, I would argue that <laughs> uh, this is sort of a backwards argument, but in some ways, President Trump did the court, the conservatives, a favor because his challenges to the election were so ridiculous and over the top and insane that almost all the justices said, like, forget it, we're not doing this. There was a really, you know, unified rejection by the American, by the whole American judiciary of those challenges that makes the court and the judiciary look very reasonable and moderate and, like, reality-based. But that doesn't have a whole lot to do with these other hugely important issues, like whether states can have strong gun control laws, you know, what happens to the future of reproductive rights, religious freedom, like, all these other issues that are the usual hot-button issues for the courts i want to turn back to another subject which has nothing to do with this which is i'm just obsessed with the fact that they've named 36 people to this commission which is a terrible number if you've ever been on a committee you know that you cannot get anything done if there's more it than it should like be like 12 se- seven right? people on max. it max. oh max I think you, but i'm just wondering i actually am posing this as a question maybe listeners you can what would 36 people what kind of entity would work with 36 people? I think a high school football team, that's like about the right number Sand, for a high school football team. Sandbagging operation, if you were trying to stack sandbags against it. For what? For what size? Fire, what si- not fire, for a whole it, river. A fire. Well, a fire. A choir. In a, oh, a, in choir. a world in which a choir choirs is return, a great, choir's I feel like great. 36 people, like four times nine, that's good. Choir's, choir's they, excellent. Oh, yeah. Also, where do 80% of the members of the 36-member body, what two colleges did they attend? Uh, let me guess. Um, UC, Santa Barbara, it's so mysterious. and yeah, Oberlin. I just want to say yeah. I am representing the 20% on the committee. With you <laughs> Harvard and Yale people. Uh, A pox um, on both of those yeah. houses. Let us go to cocktail chatter. When you are having a cocktail party in the future, which has 36 people, which might be a good number <laughs> for a cocktail party. I don't know. Not quite yet. Not no, not yet. I'm not saying now. I'm not saying now. Oh, I'm okay. saying in the future. I'm saying what would be a good 36 people is a good number of people for a cocktail party, potentially. I'm just thinking about that. How, how far in the future do you think we will be when we can, in fact, have 36 people at Christmas a party. party? Holiday party. Okay. All right. Hmm. You don't okay. think, do you think sooner or later? Outside the summer, no. Yeah. Okay. Indoors. Indoors, yeah. I don't know. What, what do you, what's your guess? I, put, I just put a marker down. December, December 8th. Should uh, February, will holiday parties. Everyone has to wear a robe, though. Emily? <laughs> uh, I really like the idea of holiday parties being possible with lots of people next winter. And I think over the summer outside, as long as there's lots of air circulation, seems okay. Let's imagine our cocktails at that situation. John, what will you be chattering about at that holiday party? Watch the um, Netflix series Call My Agent. Oh, Um, definitely. Have you watched it? Yes. So Um, great. Yeah. I mean, just do it. I'm not going to say anything more because I think I'll ruin it. It's very funny. And it's just the right amount of lightness, but it has some very subtle and super smart little storylines in it. It was just what we needed. Also, I, I also quite liked actually The Irregulars, um, which is uh, Sherlock Holmes fan fiction. It's quite short, but uh, uh, I also quite like that. Emily, what's your chatter? This is a sad chatter, but I am feeling very worried about a death penalty case in Tennessee. Um, the defendant's name is Purvis Payne, and he was convicted in the 1980s of this horrible double murder, like horrible, of a mother and her two-year-old. So his story from the very beginning is that he heard cries for help because his girlfriend lived next door. He walked into this apartment 
there was a knife still in the body of this woman. And so he tried to pull it out, got blood on his hands, got blood on his clothes, tried to call the police with the phone. And so his fingerprints are on the phone. So, yes, there is physical evidence that implicates him. But his story has always been that he was not the actual murderer. It is such a terrible crime. It seems like a crime of passion. And there's no evidence that he, you know, was intimate with this woman or would have had a reason to do this. Anyway, lo these many years later, the Shelby County District Attorney's Office, Amy Wyrick, who I've written about and talked about before, for many years resisted additional DNA testing. Sis boo, Amy Wyrick. Mm. By the time they did it, the evidence was degraded, and so it was sort of inconclusive. The remaining issue in this case is that Purvis Payne has tested low in terms of his IQ. He is someone who may very well have an intellectual disability. And the Supreme Court ruled executions of people with intellectual disabilities unconstitutional several years ago. But this judgment was already final. And so Purvis Payne has never been able to bring his intellectual disability claim before any court to get it heard. And that just seems unconscionable. So the Tennessee legislature is actually considering a bill right now that would address this particular issue. And my understanding is that Tennessee has never had a claim come forward um, like this one, and it really seems like something they should fix. One big question is that the legislature has almost done its session. And so are they going to make a priority of passing this bill and giving this man a chance to make this, you know, critical legal argument? And there is also a petition for clemency in front of Governor Lee in Tennessee. So anyway, this is a just really upsetting death penalty case that is looming. And I guess the last thing I'll say is that executions were on pause in Tennessee because of COVID until uh, April 9th. But now an execution date could really be set at any time. We're reopening. Mm, exactly. That's amazing that you can't, that, that the Supreme Court has outlawed this, but you cannot actually appeal it. Bring the claim yeah. because, like, your judgment was final. Yeah. I agree. Um, my chatter was sent to me by many people, saw it across many channels. Saru's Faravar, GabFest listener, was the first person to tip me to it, which is the United States, gird yourself, is entering a boba crisis that because there's a whole bunch of shipping containers piled up at West Coast ports, uh, the shipping containers that contain the tapioca balls that help make bubble tea are delayed, and boba houses, boba shops, boba tea houses around the country are about to experience a massive shortage, a shortage that could last for two months. Some of you may know I am an absolute boba addict. I have bubble tea every day, and... I don't really know what's going to happen. If there was a period at the beginning of pandemic where I didn't have bubble tea because pandemic, you know, shut everything down. So there was no bubble tea on offer. And so there's probably a month where I didn't have bubble tea at the beginning of pandemic until I ordered my own boba. And uh, I, I, I don't want to live in a world without bubble tea. And can you stock, can you stock boba? I have some, I have some, I've got some, uh, but I don't Are th- you good at making it yourself? It seems like something you would rather have other people make. Well, no? the bubble, the bubbles actually, making the bubbles at home is actually better. Uh, mm. The tea that I make is much worse, but the bubbles can you are help better. A, can you help a brother out if uh, we get into the pinch there? Uh, <clears throat> my son is mad for bubble tea. He uh, often goes like to one, to, you know, the other end essentially of the island to go to his favorite yes. bubble tea place. Well, oh, what's his favorite one? Uh, I don't, uh, I can't All John knows is it's inconvenient and far away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because, you know, we're, you're always, as a parent, taking readings on... Is it the Boba Guys? On... The Boba Guys is generally the one that people are very no. fond of. You know, you're always taking readings of um, what your children are truly interested in and what they will exert effort because mm. towards. And this is a real... Um, this gets this gets real activity. Well, that and you guitar, tell them to, tell to call me and we'll... We'll, I will we'll figure I, out a way. I, Why is the tea you make worse? That seems surprising. Well, because the tea that I particularly love is a really creamy, milky tea. And I just don't know. I, I, I don't like tea. And so I don't make tea that much. And I don't know how to make mm. a creamy, milky tea. Gotcha. Okay. Wait. We have an answer. Bao sugar in Koreatown? Oh, yeah. That's he. That must be one of those. That's a kind of post-dates my uh, boba... Uh, initiation at these very brown sugary ones. I mean, people like them. They're very sweet. They're even sweeter than regular bubble tea. But good. Yeah. He's got, I'm sure That's he has the metabolism to carry that off. 
listeners, you have continued to send us great chatters. You tweet them to us at, at @slategafs. Please tweet them to us at, at @slategafs. Some article, some work of culture, a movie, song, historical episode that is wonderful, strange, horrifying, magnificent, tragic, and most of all worthy of discussion at your cocktail party. And we will call you about it and hopefully you can do it on the air and today's listener chatter comes from gabe jacobs who's talking about a 99 percent invisible episode about the freedom house ambulance service an episode i listened to i can't wait to hear what gabe has to say about it episode 405 freedom house ambulance service tells the story of young black men from pittsburgh in 1966 who along with phil Hallen and dr peter safar recognized the problems of having the police who had very little medical training, act as the first responders to medical emergencies, especially in black neighborhoods. These men went on to become the first EMTs, saving over 200 people's lives in the first year of Freedom House Ambulance Service's existence alone. I personally can't imagine living in a world without EMTs, and I think this story is a great example of how distributing funds to train services, particularly around health and mental health, is better for public health and safety than throwing additional money at the police force in hopes that they can serve the public in ways they were never trained to do. Well, those people certainly were prescient. They figured something out that we were just talking about 10 minutes ago. What a fantastic example of, of defunding totally. the police and shifting their responsibilities. That's our show for today. The Gapfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. And we say a sad, sad and also happy goodbye to Faith Smith. Faith has been responsible for our live events here at the GabFest for years. She's going off to a great new opportunity, and we're going to miss her terribly because Faith could get anything done and do it with good cheer and competence and intelligence and is just like a, a better colleague you cannot imagine. We will miss you so Faith, much, we Faith. we are going to miss you. Yeah. Go forth and prosper. For sure. Thank you, Faith. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest and tweet your chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? You know, the world is really terrible, and Tom Wyman in the New York Times, reminded us of that this week. Tom Wyman is a philosopher who wrote a piece for the Times, which was uh, headlined, Why, Despite Everything, You Should Have Kids If You Want Them. In a time of COVID-19, climate change, and catastrophe, having a baby is an act of radical hope. And if you read this piece, it's actually, uh, it really does not make you want to have a baby. <laughs> It really makes you really worried about having a baby because it's it's just about all the horror that we could be leaving to our children. All three of us have children, multiple children, and um, the seven seven children among the three of us. So we've clearly made a choice. But you can imagine, uh, you know, a, a, a young adult trying to make a decision about whether to procreate, and it would be a hard decision. And and you certainly like people make choices all the time not to have children for any number of reasons. But if you want to have a child, should you hesitate because the world that they face is, you know, could be catastrophic, that there will be catastrophic climate change. It could be like just absolutely terrible, even if you're uh, an American living in, in a prosperous country, the world is the world is not good. And we should note that there is a baby bust going on because of the pandemic, or at least correlated with the pandemic, where there are hundreds of thousands of fewer babies than expected um, being born to Americans right, right. now. So injecting 000. a sense of urgency Th into our conversation. 300,000 fewer. I wonder yeah. why that is. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that baby bust happened? Is it people had less sex? People deliberately were hooking up less? People were... What, I mean... I mean, it, in other times of baby bus, it's correlated with economics, right? Where people see declining job opportunities and they worry about whether they can afford to have kids. Um, yeah. Which, which suggests at least, it may not be the completely motivating reason, but it suggests some restraint, which then makes you think, if people could be restrained with respect to that, why couldn't they 
still their impulses with respect to not wearing masks. But perhaps that's a conversation hmm. for a different time. Wow. <laughs> you just leaped off into a whole different question. <laughs> Maybe all the people who were not wearing masks were having riotous sex and are, in fact, having lots of children. Um, Could be. <clears throat> let's go back to our question about whether to have a baby. So I will just say that selfishly and personally, having children is like the most rewarding, enriching immersive experience I've ever had. I cannot imagine my life without it. I'm not pushing it on anyone who doesn't want to do it, but the idea that you wouldn't do it for a kind of abstract worry reason, while I think that's perfectly rational, I would let it go because you only have your one life. And if you want to have children, it's such a, um, there's just not, I don't think there's another experience that's like it. And so I would not give it up because of some fear of what could happen in the future, even though that is a real concern. Wait, but what, I mean, you feel that fear about what could happen in the future is abstract. Isn't that, you know, isn't that well, part I of science and, think... and our ability to be rational creatures is to know that the future, there are certain aspects of the future that we're pretty sure are going to happen. And they're alarming to imagine a loved one having to live through. Isn't well, the abstract it's sort of about timeline, right? Sorry, John. No, no, no. It's what's I guess it's is it abstract or is it concrete? Because because implicit in the idea that you won't have kids is that is that humanity will fail. Um, I I mean the thing is like humanity has been doing better, not worse, for the most part. Low these like four hundred years, right? I mean not in every place, not in every instance. I don't mean to be overstating it, but like for the most part. Life is improved materially. And so while it's possible that will reverse, and I mean, I do think climate change is a huge threat and another pandemic is a huge threat. And like, so is a meteor striking the earth. Um, and we're that's, fair. That's, that's like, but, but Emily, the way you oh, just she, tossed in a meteor strike there, I thought, oh. I think it's exactly wrong. Like a really? But I thought that was like a real thing that we should be worrying about much more than we do. I didn't mean it in a well. Like, it felt sorry cavalier way. It felt to me like oh, you're like cavalier, like oh, no, oh, like a oh, meteor. Being... The other two, no, ca- I think climate change is, like is a huge. Real th- I think future people who worry about the future get really like we should actually do something about meteors. Is my sense from my son who thinks about all of this much more than me. But what I was going to say is that for me, this has to do with timeline. Like it seems to me entirely likely that in like 200 to a thousand years gabfest fans that was just a teaser to hear the rest of our slate plus conversation go to slate.com slash gabfest plus to become a slate plus member today with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.